Welcome to Elixir Mix, your Elixir podcast talking with members of the community. My name is Mark Erickson. On our panel today, we're joined by Josh Adams. Coming to you from a truck. And our special guest, Steve Bussey. Coming in from Atlanta, Georgia. Awesome. Well, we're glad to have Steve on. And uh, so, Steve, why don't you just give us a little bit of background, like where do you work, what kind of problems are you solving, and then we'll jump into our topic. Yeah, so I'm a uh, software architect at SalesLoft. Uh, it's a company in Atlanta, Georgia. We make sales software. Um, I've been been working here for about six years now. I started when the company was real small, about 15 employees, and now we're up to over 500 employees, and the engineering team alone is, you know, our product and engineering is over 120 people, so it's been like crazy growth, and we started off all Ruby shop, uh, you know, your typical Rails, Sidekick, RSpec type stack, and probably about uh, three or I don't even know, the, the year sort of blend, let's say three years ago, uh, we started introducing some Elixir into our stack and actually then maturing it. So now it's a viable option for people that are writing new code, um, microservices. So, uh, you know, someone wants to build something new, they have Elixir as an option. So um, I've been working in that, not exclusively, but uh, pretty heavily for the past three years now uh, and really liking it. Early in my career, I figured out which jobs were worth working at and which ones weren't, mostly by trial and error. I created a system that I used to find jobs and later contracts as a freelancer. If you're looking for a job or trying to figure out where you should go next, then check out my book, The Max Coder's Guide to Finding Your Dream Developer Job. The book walks you through figuring out what you want, vetting companies that meet your criteria, meeting that company's employees, and getting them to recommend you for a job. Don't settle for whoever has listed their job on the job board. Go out and proactively find the job you'll love. Buy the book at devchat.tv slash job book. That's devchat.tv slash job book. What was the sweet spot that sort of started seeing Elixir get introduced? So the first projects we did, one of them was a um, for a telephone type product where the presence information was really important. So like that app is a, like uses very heavily Phoenix presence and uh, does a lot of cool stuff with that. And then the second app that sort of introduced uh, Elixir in was uh, for real time notifications. So we were replacing one of our uh, items in our, in our rails monolith just to make it more extensible over time. So we could add new, new, new things to it. Uh, Cause it, was, it wasn't really built to be like flexible and it just hit into Elixir's sweet spot because we needed particularly uh, the real time aspect. And we were trying to get off of our, um, our real time provider that, that we had been using from the Ruby world. Very cool. Well, Steve, uh, we have a lot of fun things we can talk about. So we'll just kind of see where this conversation takes us because you do a lot of stuff. And so that's really great. And I'm excited to talk about these things. So one, we have to mention that you have uh, an Elixir book that uh, you can purchase it at PragProg, which I think right there is a, a vote of quality because they don't put out, you know, they don't have, uh, you know, uh, shoddy books. So that's awesome. And I'd love to hear just like how you got into creating this book. And why don't you tell us a little bit about it, like who it's for and uh, what people might find when they open it up. Yeah, so the book is Real-Time Phoenix, um, like you said, by Pragmatic Bookshelf. And this book would be for people that are um, intermediate range. It's, it's not like a, you know, Elixir 101 type book or an intro to web dev book, but it's for people that want to add the real-time function, functionalities to their application. And they like doing that, it's, it's pretty easy to get started, especially with Elixir and Phoenix. They've really made it easy to get started. 
But then when you want to actually ship it out to a lot of users and you need it to be very reliable and not that it's not reliable at a default, but you have to do things to, you know, maintain that reliability in production. And there's a lot of little like harder nuggets of information along the way of things that were very painful for me in those first applications. Like I said, the you know first one I'd worked on was a real-time application and, you know, a, a six-month rollout process on that birthed a lot of frustrations for me in particular. So it was sort of a, the, the idea started mauling in my head out of frustration, out of like, you know, I, I felt a little bit crazy because everyone was saying how easy it was. They're like, you know, well, we don't really need a book about this. It's pretty easy to do, which is true. Like, uh, you know, the, the getting started guide for Phoenix channels is very good, very thorough. And you can, um, you know, build applications just from that. But there was just a lot of other stuff about the actual productionization process that were very difficult. And so that's where that, that's where the book came from. And I'd sort of been mauling on it as like a, Oh, this is like a need. And I didn't see anyone doing it. And it just sort of, um, you know, you know, obviously I, I, I did some work to, to make it happen, but it's sort of, you know, I got lucky a little bit in some respects too. Like I should, you know, I have to, I have to, you know, acknowledge that luck in some respects. I had, um, had the idea for the book and I submitted it and had been rejected uh, twice. And I had, I had tried to like tweak it and be like, Hey, you know, would, would this be a book you'd be interested in? And it was just like, no, sorry, we're not going to do this. And I just sold it totally poorly in my, in my pitch. So um, I had, I went to Lone Star Elixir two years ago and uh, I was taking a training class there and Bruce Tate was also there. Um, I forget if he was giving a train. I think he was probably giving a training. Um, let's just say he was. And so I, you know, ha ha uh, caught up with him in the hallway and said, Hey, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, I'm, I, I said, I'm pretty far along with this other publisher, you know, what, what are your thoughts? And, you know, is this something that you'd do? And he said, yeah, why, why don't you submit to pragmatic? And, um, I had been, I was like, Hey, I've already, I did that. I, I was rejected two or, or, or three times even. Um, and he, he worked with me to, uh, to rewrite the, the proposal to be more focused on the reader and what you get out of it. So I, I focused very on a very technical aspect. Here's, here's what the book's going to be about. And he said, Hey, you really have to tweak this and say, what can you do with the things that you learn in it rather than what are the things that you're going to be doing? And so I, I literally, I didn't change that much. I, I honestly just, just flipped it on its head a little bit and it was like complete night and day. They were like, yes, we're interested in this. And you know, it was about a year then from that point to the time that it was released in April of, um, of 2020. So it was about a year for the whole process. It sounds like the book is in a category that uh, I love, which is the make you cuss at computers less. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yep. Yeah. That, that is definitely the goal. Cause there are, there are things in there that you wouldn't really discover until the moment that you're discovering it is when you're like app is down or you, you just forked something in production. And uh, thinking also about the book, I was thinking about, you know, when I was writing it, I had some goals about what I wanted to get out of, get out of it personally and you know and then that's going to translate into things I wanted to improve on so definitely one of the hardest things about writing it was that when I was just beginning my my writing style um is best described as stiff uh for my for my editor in in you know in a very kind way of telling me these things and it was it's very difficult at the beginning when you it's, it's sort of like a code review it's like let's say that you're a senior engineer going into a company and you like 
you've been you've been coding you know you've been coding for a while i've been i've been writing as a person i've you know i've always liked writing and, and enjoyed the process of writing and then you you get into a job and you 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 work really hard on on some prs and then someone comes in and just like sort of rips it apart and like you know deconstructs all the things that you thought you were doing right but maybe could be improved on and the writing process was definitely like that in the beginning it wouldn't be uncommon to get you know i do a chapter cut and get you know 50 to 70 comments on it from my editor and it was great because that's exactly what i wanted right i want to get better and the the way to get better is by being told like hey th these are the things that you're doing that aren't great but it's also a painful experience because you know that that 70 you know you you, you put your soul into it and and then you get back a lot of comments but it, it was cool you know also at the same time to see the improvement over time so those first chapters you know getting just so many comments back submitting it again you know making all the edits getting on the phone talking about the edits submitting another one getting 30 comments back you know whittling it down to good and then you know the later chapters it might be 20 or 15 comments and then it's like we just do a pass and then the second pass it's like all right this is this is good because you you know what you're looking for. So I would create a list of like, as I'm writing, like look for these things or like banned words lists. Uh, so, you know, that was, it was definitely hard, but it was also rewarding because one of my biggest goals was to learn how to write a book. Um, like even when you write a book in your experience, you still want an editor there, but being able to have that mindset yourself before you give it to an editor is something that I wanted to gain for sure. Sweet. Well, that is really cool. So I encourage people to check out that book. Uh, we have a link to it in the show notes. Uh, it's Real Time Phoenix. And also, so there's another topic. There's two other topics. Like, so one is you have a, a uh, text package that's on GitHub uh, called Ecto Tenancy Enforcer. And we also uh, could talk a little bit about POW, uh, but we'll do that afterward. Uh, but so one of the things that's interesting about this uh, library is just you know, we've had some previous guests where we've done interviews and we, there's been some discussion in the community about people saying, uh, you know, maybe I want to have multiple databases uh, to isolate my customer's data. So there's no chance that I might have accidental uh, data leakage, you know, or a breach of, you know, that, uh, that isolation. And uh, so there's a number of different approaches people are taking to that. Uh, I, then there's also just the approach of, I have my own, um, isolation just within, you know, apartment style. I have a many different customers and their data all in one database. And so where does this uh, gem, or, or sorry, why did I say gem? Because I was thinking, <laughs> I was thinking I've done these types of different things, both sides in Rails projects before. Yeah. But uh, so where does this, where does this package fit? Like what side do you fall on? Yeah. So the side that we've fallen on at SalesLoft is the one database with a tenant ID on every table. And then we, we tenant that data. And there's, like you're saying, the, the multi-database style, there's lots of companies that have great success on that. So even a local Atlanta company that I know does that, um, or I should say, at least I knew that as of, you know, a few years ago when I was, had talked to them about how they do this, uh, is MailChimp. They have literally hundreds of thousands or probably millions now individual databases that um, ideally a single customer is on a single database, but they also actually do the apartment style where it's tenanted so that they can put smaller customers uh, together on one database node because, you know, it's just expensive to do it. So 
the the reason I think we've fallen on the the I'll call it the apartment style, which is um, just to be really clear for everyone, that's where you have a a tenant ID on every table. So the reason we've fallen into that style is um, honestly, it's that there's a lot of simplicity there, like especially in terms of deployment. So if you have multiple databases, you need to make sure your your schema rolls out, and especially if you have thousands of databases, um, you know you're going to have going to have a, some operational challenges to overcome, which you know I'm sure lots of people do that just fine. But it, it's definitely there, there's a simplicity in not having to worry about that. The other thing that's actually worked out really well for us, um, it's been a few years now since we adopted it, is a technology called CytusDB which is a Postgres, I guess it's an extension on Postgres. Um, it's, yeah, it, it's, it's now an extension. It had changed over the years. But it essentially turns Postgres into a multi-sharded database where you still make queries to one database. So just like in normal, you're, you're, you're sending your queries to one database. But that database actually uses information uh, in your query, such as the tenant ID, to determine how to route that particular query. And then you could have, um, in our case, we could have up to 64 different backend Postgres databases. So the, the cool thing here is that um, we, we get a lot better scalability. We, we actually hit the limits of RDS in terms of actually even just like data storage, but then also we were hitting our limits on memory, hitting our limits on CPU. We really didn't have anywhere to upgrade to. And the cool thing with Citus is you can essentially now have, instead of one maxed out box, in the worst case, you could have and I think in, in ours, it was 64. We, we determined that was our number. You could have 64 maxed out boxes, which is a much different problem than having a single one. Um, and I don't think that we're really going to max out on what Citus can offer us. So that technology in particular really works heavily with, um, with the apartment style multi-tenancy. And it's just really cool. We, we don't use that in all of our um, projects because it is expensive. I, I mean, you're running now n number of databases instead of one you, you have to pay for those it's not you know it's not like magically free or anything but the fact that you can scale it up really well is has been a pretty cool um pretty cool aspect of the technology so that's why we do the apartment style and, and that it's worked well for us um in the you know o over the past few years hey folks this is charles maxwood and over the last few years i've gotten to know a lot of great people within the microsoft community and specifically in the .NET area. Uh, one of our guests from JavaScript Jabber, Sean Clabo, actually reached out to me and said he wanted to start a show on .NET. And there are a ton of people out there that I feel like sometimes get neglected in the .NET space. So if you're one of those folks, uh, you've been listening to maybe one or two of the other .NET-focused or Microsoft-focused podcasts for a while and thought, well, where's the devchat.tv-style podcast for me in .NET? you can find it. It's at adventuresin.net. .net is spelled out, D-O-T-N-E-T. Adventuresin.net.com. Go check it out today. Yeah, I, I just want to mention, uh, just to kind of clarify for the listener, um, like there's three in, in that I can think of, maybe four that I can think, different approaches I can think of right now. And you, I'm sure you guys can think of more. But like one, you have a completely separate database for each customer. Another one is maybe you have a, a customer prefix on a table name. So they're all in the same database, but you have different tables for it to isolate different users' data. Another one, like with Postgres, you can do schemas, which is kind of like a separate database, but it's not a separate database server like, a, like you would run on RDS. And then there's 
you know, maybe just I have a client ID or something. And then there's the more explicit, I always have a tenant ID on it because like the less specific client ID is just, oh, I have a relational, you know, relational database table arrangement. And there's nothing to say it's this tenant ID on this other thing I have to actually go up and look at, uh, you know, the owning record and to see what that's related to. So that's less secure or less uh, easy to isolate. So yeah, and, and, and security is the biggest thing here, right? Like to me, the single most, like the single biggest issue that a multi-tenant application could have is leakage of customer data. I would take a multi-day downtime over leaked customer data, especially if it was prevalent. Like it's, it's a really big deal. So it's important to have um, guarantees about, that, about how you're not going to leak data. Um, and, and with the apartment style, you don't really have it because um, you could, uh, you know, you could forget something or you could, you know, accidentally give the a conflicting ID and now the database could just decide, oh, I'll take both of them. And now, now, now you sort of bring in both aspects of the data. Uh, Citus does have some protections. You actually can't do, uh, you can't repartition. So once I say that tenant ID is one in a particular query, I can't then go and say, oh, let me fetch data for number two. It sort of uh, locks it down on a per query basis. And then we have application level enforcement to say that you can't change in your actual like uh, application code path. Um, you're sort of locked into your tenant. But in the Elixir world, we didn't have any of that. So, you know, we're building these microservices still using the apartment style, um, but we didn't have Citus in place. So we didn't have the database level guarantees and there was nothing to provide uh, an application level guarantee um, which is honestly the application level guarantee is good enough, especially if, if you're in a smaller application where you don't need the performance of a multi database uh, with something like Citus. Uh, and that's where Active Tenancy Enforcer came out. And it also, the, one of the other reasons it came out, I had uh, at uh, what, uh, ElixirConf in uh, Denver, I had won the Dashbit, which is now, it's now Dashbit with, with Jose Valim, uh, the one month. Uh, membership trial to be like, you could ask us anything and we'll sort of consult with you for the month around just questions you have. And I wanted a, a project to test it out with. And, and I actually did like the service. I, it's not something that I in particular needed, but I would have recommended it to other people that, especially a team that was ramping up on Elixir, but I wanted to pick sort of a hard project to really dig into the service and dig into something. So I, I took this project in particular, and I looked at multiple different approaches to it. And the one I ended up on was using a new feature in the Ecto repo, Ecto repo called Prepare Query. And it's pretty cool because essentially before, query, uh, before the query runs, it just calls a function with that query. You can change it if you want to, but in the case of Ecto Tenancy Enforcer, it just sort of verifies that the query is okay. And so what that means in this case is you say this schema must be in, uh, must have tenancy set on it. And anytime that a query happens, it's going to check that, um, that there's a tenant ID and say aware. And if you do a join, it's going to ensure that those, that there's either a tenant ID in the join or that you did like a tenant ID equals and you set it to the same number. So it's basically going to prevent cross tenant data leaking from a query level in your application. And it's not perfect because there's still a few gaps in it, um, but I, I've been using it in uh, a few projects now and it's actually um, caught things in development where I like forgot to do the, the tenancy enforcement, just so, like it'll be like a single query. 
but that's all it takes. Like one query slips through, a new engineer comes into a project, doesn't really think about it, they add it in, and now you have like, um, you know, lawyers involved because you showed some sensitive data to the wrong party. And so it's, so for me, having any sort of protection against it is, is really important. So um, it, it, like I said, I've been using it on a few projects now. It seems to work out well. Uh, it's caught things. I've caught things that it doesn't catch. So there's still, it's not perfect, um, but it, it does a pretty good job with that. That's cool. And I really like how uh, on the GitHub page, you have like a section of benefits and trade-offs. Because I, what I think is, you know, anyone who's been developing and doing things with technology long enough realizes that everything with technology seems to be about trade-offs, right? You're trading maybe cost for performance or something. And, and I love how you have pros and cons and just identifying it's really good at this. Some edge cases about this don't work so great. Uh, but I think that's really helpful to me as like someone who's trying to evaluate a, a library and determine if this is a good fit. Otherwise, you know, like so often you see these libraries where it's like, oh, this will help solve all these problems. And you start using it. It's like, oh, this doesn't work well for this scenario that I have. So I appreciate just that you uh, recognize that, you know, this, this is good for these situations and it may not be perfect for your situation, but, you know, here's, so I think that's great. I love that. Awesome. Thanks. I like reading through the tests on the library. It made me happy. <laughs> yes, actually, this this is a really good one. I, I don't I'm not normally a proponent of say TDD. Um, I just I don't I find that it does it doesn't match the way I think. So I'm normally thinking about um, like I think about the UI very heavily and and the sort of that that and I guess there's different schools of TDD or but I so regardless of that I don't really do it. But for this one, I the one point where I really do like using TDD is when I have no like I just don't know where to go. I'm, I'm, I'm just sitting there and I know what I want to happen, but I have zero clue how I'm going to make it happen. And that was exactly this project because essentially you get a, uh, if you use prepare query, you get an ecto query that is a struct that has basically a description of how this query is going to be executed. And it's up to you as the developer to piece together what exactly that means. And it's not light. It is, uh, it is very, um, it's, it's like a, I guess it's a, it's almost like an AST for the query. And so you have to walk it and process it. And so I literally just, I wrote a test. It's like, it rejects a query that doesn't have a tenant ID. And I just started there and I, it, I would print out the query, look at it visually, see, oh, all right, this is the bit where it does have it. And this is the bit where it doesn't have it. Let me write that in. And I literally, I mean, I probably did 50 different test cases just doing that over a few days, just like add a test, break it. All right, check it. And you start getting into multi-table joins and, and you're on your, on your third join, you decide to, you know, there's a test where to like break it. And it's like, all right, it, it handled that. And, you know, sort of TDD the, TDD the thing. And so when it came to documenting it, how do you actually use it? I was like, actually copying these tests is really the, the right way to go about it. Cause it was literally the way it was developed and it was de designed to document the particular cases that I was trying to ex ex experience uh, when I was doing the TDD. So that, that is sort of a fun one. If you, if you look at that project, just to look at the, the tests on it and, and see all the different ways that the queries were prepared and, and, and the way that they were thought about. That's very cool. Cause I, I just going to comment how you mentioned how you like to, you think about the API or the, the UI, right? The experience and kind of, take things from that direction often. But when you're writing a library, 
the API is the, is the interface, right? So like, yeah, I, I think it's, it's cool. Uh, I just, I love writing tests, especially as a way of exploring the code I'm trying to write. Like I was working on some code yesterday on a project and it's like, I know what I want it to do. Let me describe, you know, how under this scenario, this should be my result. And then yes, there's the same scenario. It's like, I don't know exactly yet how to make it happen. I'll go figure that out afterward. Uh, but it was just nice because, uh, you know, like right now in a situation where you've got maybe uh, kids at home that might be distracting and things like that. What? <laughs> so if I can have focused time where I can write out my tests, then I have like a blueprint that I can kind of follow. And as distractions come along, I can quick, more quickly jump back into where I was because I see what's passing, what's failing now. And okay, that's the one I'm working on. So it helps what me I like a little more on target. I agree that that is one of the biggest values of tests is like if you can just carve out a little bit of focus time, then like the rest of the time, the distractions, you can, you can mitigate the downside of them. Uh, the other thing I like is I all the time think I know how this thing's going to work. And so I go to write the tests and then I find out, I don't actually know what I'm testing for here. I hadn't really thought it through. I just kind of had some hand wavy utopian vision, <laughs> but I hadn't thought about any of the actual computering. And so the tests helped me actually have to go ahead and do the hard work of thinking. Yeah, it's definitely a, it, it is a liberating feeling when it all comes together. So it is, it's definitely satisfying. Uh, and then also there's a, like one thing you mentioned was, you know, writing a test and walking away. This, this particular library even has, tests that are written that are passing because they're documenting how it works that have like a tag on them that says undesired. Like I, I would prefer this work differently, but I literally don't know how to make it happen or if it's even possible to make it happen in like a functional world. So I'm just going to sort of throw up my hands, write the test for the way it is, document the fact that it's not great, uh, put it in the readme as a con. And then if someone ever wants to come in and figure out, Hey, what's the thing to work on? All right. Well, I guess there's these tests that are undesired. Is there some way that I could fix that? And it's all documented there. I could come back to this in a year or two years and I'll know what I was thinking whenever I, whenever I wrote this library. So, um, that's, that's a nice freeing feeling because I don't feel this weight of having to keep it all in my head over time. Yeah. I'm going to steal that tag. <laughs> <laughs> tag undesired. I like that idea. All right. Well, I, I've been enjoying this conversation where I don't want to take up all your time. So let's jump real quick into uh, this other discussion about POW. So, uh, so POW, maybe you can just give us a little background as to what this is. Because uh, if you're coming from the Ruby world, there was a, like an application web server on Mac that would you know, automatically start up your thing and it's called POW and has nothing to do with this. So maybe you can give us a little intro what this is. Yeah, so POW is a... Uh Self, I'll, I'll read their, their self-description here is a ro robust, modular, and extendable user authentication system. So if people are used to devise in, in the Ruby world, I sort of equate it to a lighter version of devise in the Elixir world. Device had a lot of, has had a lot of time and eyes on it. Um, PAL has, you know, had fewer maintainers and, and less time. So it is like there, it has less features, but it's sort of, you know, you know generally accomplishing the same thing. And so um, what I was looking at it for, I, I have never used it. So I've been, you know, I've been in the Elixir world for a few years now, but you know, at Salesloft, like, like we're not, you're, you're, I don't really think you're going and rewriting user flows or, or like user login flows and stuff like that. Like it's been our, our server, which is based on device 
has been running for years now. It, it works great. I don't really have any issues with it. So it's not like something that we've been exploring doing in the Elixir world. But I, I was thinking about it. And I was like, oh, this would sort of be a fun project. I'm curious about it. I have a little bit of time on my hands. And so I started digging into basically my goal was to create an implementation of a um, let's call it a user service for, you know, for lack of a better term that uses pal that does the things that I would want out of one. Um, you know, one of the reasons is to, you know, get exposure to it, but then also like if I ever need that, I don't want to like, let, let, let's say you're building something and you need that, that user service. I don't really want to spend a week or two building it. I'd rather just have something that's already built. And so my goal is to have this reference implementation that I could spin up in a new project in like a day. And it has, it has like all the bells and whistles that I would need. You can get all of that, all those bells and whistles with PAL, but it does take a little bit of ramping up to figure out how to do that. So my, my goal is to do that ramping up now and think about it so I don't have to in the future and then just to see what it's all about. So, you know, I've been, I, I, I will say I sort of stalled it. I, I was working on it pretty heavily for maybe two or three weeks and, and got a really good progress on it. And then I sort of went down a path, a rabbit hole. And when I realized I didn't want to go down the rabbit hole anymore, I sort of uh, stalled a little bit because now I haven't come back up to the, to the rest of the project. But, you know, it's over, over the next few weeks, I'll, I'll definitely get into it more. And I, and I want to write a blog post, too, about my experiences with it. One of the cooler things about PAL, too, just to um, talk about probably the, I don't know, the thing that interested me the most about it, and this is if I was to write a blog post, probably the thing I would focus on. I've, I've not seen a library in, in the Elixir community that does it quite like PAL does, which is a very, very modular and extendable system. Basically, everything that you do, you do it in a way that it can be hooked into. So an example of that is if you're writing a controller, instead of just writing an action like you do in Phoenix, it, you actually define sort of a before and an after, or it's almost like your logic and then your response block. And it's built in such a way that you could write in a, um, a plugin of some sort that goes in between the two. So let's say you wanted to do something else, like you wanted to return a different response um, in, in some criteria, like you were implementing a lockout feature and you wanted to lock out a user from being able to log in. You could build that and not have to monkey patch any code by sort of saying, you know, before the, uh, or but before the response for a login event, I want to check this and then I'm going to return a failure if this is true. And it's like everything is built that way. The, the, the entire library from the ground up is built in this extendable way. I just, I've never seen that pattern implemented like that in Elixir. And in particular, I think it's, it's interesting because if you were in Ruby, you could go and like worst case go and monkey patch something, but you don't really have, so it really has to be thought of as a feature at the beginning of development. So I'm, you know, I, I know that that's one of the big tenants of PAL and something that the library maintainer, Dan, has put a lot of time into. One of the biggest pain points that I find as I talk to people about software is deployment. It's really interesting to have the conversations with people where it's, I don't want to deal with Docker, I don't want to deal with Kubernetes, I don't want to deal with setting up servers, I don't, you know, all of these different things. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has gotten a lot easier. And in a lot of ways, DevOps has also kind of embraced a certain amount of culture around applications, the way we build them, the way we deploy them. And I've really felt for a long time that developers need to have the conversations with DevOps 
or adopt some form of DevOps so that they can take control of what they're doing and really understand when things go to production, what's going on so that they can help debug the issues and fix the issues and find the issues when they go wrong and help streamline things and make things better and slicker and easier so that they'll more generally go right. So we started a podcast called Adventures in DevOps. And I pulled in one of the hosts from one of my favorite DevOps shows, Nell Shamrell Harrington from the Food Fight Show. And we got things rolling there. And so this is more or less a continuation of the Food Fight Show where we're talking about the things that go into DevOps. So if you're struggling with any of these operational type things, then definitely check out Adventures in DevOps. And you can find it at adventuresindevopspodcast.com. Yeah, I, uh, I have a friend who uh, was you know, in that process of creating a new service or a new, you know, exploring an idea, having fun and say, Hey, I want to make a project that does this. And, you know, user auth is like that thing of like, Oh, well, I could just maybe skip that right now and just trying to get into my thing. Or it's like, maybe I'll just take a time and learn. So he, you know, he says, well, I'm just going to try and learn how to do auth. And, you know, he spends like two weeks on it and, and he's still struggling because he's fairly new to Elixir. So having something to give you fast leverage has a lot of value because that's not even unless you're what your goal is, is to build something around authentication. And that's what's special about your application. Unless that's the goal, then that's just like the hurdle or the obstacle to get to your idea. So there is a lot of value in just being able to say, I want to do an, I have an idea that does this thing over here and I need users. So let's get that done. Boom. Okay. Now I'm playing with my idea. So I think uh, the idea of POW, Guardian, a lot of these different uh, solutions are uh, helpful and that something is needed. Uh, so I did just want to mention, um, like I'm also involved with the Utah Elixir meetup. And uh, like, so my friend who is going through this process, he's going to the uh, upcoming meetup will be done virtually and he'll be giving us a overview of POW and what his experience has been like in going through this. So that'll be fun. I'll share the links when we have the video for it. Uh, but I did just want to mention also that, you know, Dashbit, uh, Jose Valim's um, new consultant, newly named consultancy company, company uh, he recently put out a blog post about a new authentication solution for Phoenix. And it is, uh, rather than being a full uh, modular library like POW, it, it takes the approach of being a generator, which, so it's a library, you still have to add the library, and it's a generator that generates, you know, the templates, which you typically want to customize anyway, like the forgot my password or, you know, a lot of those, the emails that get sent out, a lot of those things can be customized. So his is taking a different approach. So I, whatever the options that are available, I think they're all helpful. And I think it having choices is a good thing. Uh, and especially if there's not too many choices, you know, when you get like into 20 different solutions, it's like, I don't know what to do. Yeah. And that's, that's yeah. Sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just going to say, I'm excited about seeing where Jose's thing goes uh, because I was totally with you, Steve, like that I was going to spend time with POW just to understand and get over that mental hurdle and just figuring out how does this work so that when I have that idea that I want to just explore in a personal project, I can just get going and running with it. Yeah. And, and you're totally right around having options in the community. I think that's really great. And, and in particular, options that explore different avenues is important. So like, let's say Jose came out and said, I'm building a POW competitor, you know, it'd be like, why, why are you doing that? Like it, it's sort of the same thing. You're just sort of building it 
like it, it wouldn't really make sense to me. But saying I'm taking a totally different approach to the authentication world is to me very valuable purely from an aspect of maybe new ideas will come out of that. Maybe um, Pat will be inspired by ideas. Maybe they'll share ideas and, you know, the community will become better overall. So having, you know, a few solutions that are, are, are going down that same uh, problem space is, is really helpful. And, you know, I'm, I'm curious to see how that'll come out, especially, you know, I guess from a trusting perspective, like, um, even though I don't really know Jose, his stewardship in the community means that I would probably trust him, um, you know, and if he's excited about something and it's something that, you know, is a passion for him, especially, you know, he was one of the original authors of Divides. I'm not sure the whole background history there, so I won't call him the author. He might've been, um, but if it's something he's passionate about, I think it's a, a really interesting development um, and I'm curious to see where it'll go. Yeah, I mostly want to get to the point where I'm just using Key Cloak and OpenID Connect in front of everything, but uh, I haven't gotten there yet. I'm going to check that. I'm not, I'm, oh, okay. I actually have seen this on maybe like Hacker News or something, uh, the, the Key Cloak app. Now, I think, I think that with Open Connect, I, I do think that that's like uh, something that hooks in with uh, the Ascent library. With yeah, Pow Ascent will do uh, all kinds of stuff, including OpenID Connect. So I want to play that's with that. But also, once I have, I mean, there's a bunch of things that'll do OpenID Connect that are that are lighter weight than, mm. I mean, anything really. You can do it just with a, a Lua plugin in front of Nginx. That's pretty cool. I'll have to check that out. I'm also curious about the, uh, I don't know if it's Open Connect or not, uh, but the Apple authentication looks pretty cool where, like I've used some sites now. It, I mean, it's not new, but it's like generally new. It's maybe like a year old, but being able to just log into a site using your iPhone credential and like sort of get face ID into a site, a, a website is pretty cool. So I, I think that might be like Open Connect or something like that, but I'm, uh, I'm, I'm also curious to dig into that. I haven't yet. Well, since we're talking about user auth, uh, one of the things that it's not related to Elixir yet, there's not a, an Elixir solution for this, but this one I love and I've been listening uh, to and following this for years and it's now like going public, but it's called SQRL. It's like, so it's pronounced squirrel. Uh, but it's secure, quick, reliable login. And it, it originally started out being based on QR codes where uh, I could use my mobile device and just have it look at a website and then going through a separate mobile network, uh, authenticate. And, and so it, 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 I'm able to authenticate with the website without it even knowing who I am, but it knows that I'm the same person I saw last time. And so it's a completely like passwordless solution and it's completely standard space. It's open source. Uh, you can check out this webpage uh, to see video presentations that talk about how it all works. And now people are starting to build solutions for it, like WordPress plugins and .NET and Drupal and you know all these different mobile clients. And so I'm I'm really excited to see where that goes. But uh, I have. All right, so I want to play anymore. with that because it's from Steve Gibson, who does the uh, SpinWrite, which is super yes. valuable if you're if you're if you have a broken hard drive, essentially. Which but also. If you want to know how geeky this is, you can A, just look at the website, but B, I will tell you that they advertise that they have a Squirrel app for Wine, i.e. for Windows emulation on Linux. They thought that was worth the second bullet point on the website of features. So that's pretty nerdy. <laughs> that, is, that is Steve himself, like the Steve uh, of, of uh, GRC, Steve Gibson. Uh, we have two Steves now with us <laughs> in, in discussion. So this, this other Steve Gibson, he... Um, so he writes all of his code in assembler. And so 
he wrote the Windows application and he wanted it to be able to available on Linux. So he said, well, I'm just going to make sure it works in Wine and made and did that. So didn't write it specifically for Linux. His version isn't, but other people have. Anyway, that is something for people to check out. Uh, hopefully someone will write an awesome Elixir plug, Elixir package for that. So I don't have to write it, but uh, I'm looking forward to that. Uh, anyway. That's <laughs> pretty cool. Actually, there's a Squirrel OAuth 2 provider, so I think you could just wire it in with any old OAuth 2 thing. Yes, I am. Yeah, I'm super excited about that. I've been following it for years since, like the, since he first announced the idea. Uh, and you said it's like going live soon or like it's going like GA it is, soon? It is live. Uh, it has been released and it's going public. He wanted to make sure he had all the documentation done for it. Um, it's, it's more complicated than I can explain and I don't understand it fully well enough to be able to say, oh yes, it's just like this and this and this, but I have listened to it and followed it and seen the presentations. I, it is, um, it is very well thought out. So, uh, it's totally solid standards based, you know, they've thought of everything like, what if I lose control of my mobile phone and I want to be able to, and that is part of my authentication with who I am to a website. How do I get my identity back? You know, they've thought about all that. Uh, but the main thing is it's like with all good crypto, no one else can control the private key. You have to be in control of the private key. And if I lose it, it is gone, right? And so it is not having trust of anyone else. Like right now, like iMessage, Apple is the, uh, the maintainer of those keys. And so they're owning the keys of, you know, who's involved in the conversation. So it's just, it's all about, you know, who owns the keys and who's in charge. But anyway, that's something for people to check out if they're interested. Um, so Steve, uh, we're about out of our time. Is there anything else you wanted to mention or point people to before we go to picks? Um, I think that hit on, uh, hit on all of our topics for today. So I'm pretty, pretty satisfied. Awesome. All right. Well, let's go to picks. Josh, how about you? All right. So I have, first off, since we are talking about auth, I thought I should mention Bitwarden, which is my favorite password manager uh, on account of it. Uh, there's also a thing called Bitwarden RS, which is a Rust-based server. So Bitwarden by default synchronizes to the server, but you can run Bitwarden RS and not talk to their servers at all. And there are apps for everything. There's plugins for Firefox and Chrome and all the stuff that you actually need for a good plugin man or password manager. And it'll also handle like your OTP codes and it's just good. I like it. It may not be the most amazing you could possibly get, but in terms of like the open source free software stuff, it's, it's the best I could find. Uh, my second pick is uh, baby chickens. You're going to elaborate on that. That's great. I'm not. Okay. <laughs> I know they're cute. All right. Uh, I've got two. Uh, so one is I have uh, thinkingelixir.com is a website where I have training and uh, courses online. And I want to mention that the free pattern matching course is up there and you can even check out some of the things without even the free sign up, right? So, and one of the lessons I think is really helpful, special, especially for people who are coming new to Elixir is really getting their heads around lists. Because when you're coming to Elixir, you often treat a list like you do an array. You know, I, I work with people and they, they even call them arrays. And the problem with that is if you think about it as an array, then you try to treat it as one, but it doesn't behave like an array. So just check out, uh, I've got a, a link to the module where the, the lesson where we specifically talk just about lists, which you can see without signing up for anything. And then if you choose to go through the pattern matching course, it's free. Uh, you can go through all of it. It has a lot of TDD 
uh, tests which you can download and really run through things. So that one. And then I also want to mention in this, you know, depending on when this podcast goes live, I don't know what the situation will be like, you know, uh, in terms of uh, if I'm at office or working from home still or whatever. But what I've been enjoying right now is watching the old 80s, 90s TV show Seinfeld. So my wife and I just started watching that. And what's so great about it is it's just light, 25 minute long episodes, no heavy drama. It's just fun comedy. And, you know, it's on Hulu. Uh, next year, I think uh, Netflix is taking it and they'll have, uh, I think they're getting exclusive access. I'm not sure. Uh, but uh, it's just fun. And, and it's like every episode kind of stands alone. So, you know, it, it's great. Uh, another thing that is just fun, like for you, the younger listener, uh, if you're listening, if you're watching the show and you, you, you might not even get a lot of this stuff because they're mentioning all these people's names and stuff that, you know, before your time. And uh, so many of the situations could have just been solved with a mobile phone. So it's, it's just fun to watch because, you know, I lived through that time where we didn't have the mobile phone and, you know, you had to figure out how to get in touch with your friend and you're trying to meet up at a movie and you can't find them and it's like all that kind of stuff. So it's just fun. So those two for me, uh, Steve, how about you? All right. I'll, uh, I'll also go on the, uh, the theme of a, maybe a non-tech related, but has helping, has been helping me get through these, these times. Mine has been uh, the Zwift cycling platform. Um, so I, I had never really used it um, before all of the, you know, sort of self-isolation began at the beginning of March. But I, I started to get into it as a way to get some cardio going and to, uh, to, to get myself, um, you know, to, to actually enjoy it a little bit more. So basically, you, you actually hook up a bike to a trainer uh, and you have like some measurement devices that capture your power and it will actually sort of put you in a virtual world with other people, uh, real people, not bots. And you're sort of riding together. Um, there's like races. So you can actually ride against each other or maybe you're riding with each other to try to motivate each other. And it's interesting because it's, you, you wouldn't think that, that doing something in a virtual world would be that, that motivating and it looks probably not motivating from the outside. But I, I get uh, I get into it and I end up pushing myself even harder than I would have. Um, and it's nice to have something to to root um, myself to. So I'm I'm sort of motivated to do that in the evening, and it sort of also dictates how I eat during the day because I'm thinking about like you know all right I'm trying to get a little healthier and you know I don't want to waste this. So you know it's it's helped me develop some good habits over the uh, past few weeks, and you know hopefully it it won't be something that I have to keep doing you know for a long time. You know. Hopefully I'll be able to go outside and ride again. But, uh, you know, in the meantime, since I'm avoiding that, uh, you know, it's been a really, uh, really useful tool. Awesome. Well, thank you, Steve, for coming on and talking with us. I really enjoyed the conversation and I hope people will check out your book and your library. And as they think about multi-tenancy and we've had a lot of fun stuff that we talked about with auth. So check out the links in the show notes for that. So if people would like to get in touch with you or follow you online, where would they go to do that? Yeah. So, um, I am on Twitter. Uh, it's although it's maybe hard to uh, hard to remember, but it, it's Yoda with four O's and four A's. Um, <laughs> came from a, uh, a programming competition up in Canada, and uh, they would just scream that out when I entered in the room because I had a Yoda hat on. So that's uh, very a very old name now. Um, the other one is on the uh, Elixir Slack. Um, 
my name on there is SB8244, or I guess you could just look up Steve Bussey because I think it'll, it'll, it has that linked also. Um, you know, if you ever have any questions or anything on there, and then I'm also on the Elixir forum a good bit too. So people like, especially if they have questions about the book, they tend to post there so they can get sort of more public discussion going. Uh, but you know, I'm happy on any type of medium to answer questions or, or help people out. Awesome. Well, that's it for today. Thank you for listening. And we hope you'll join us next time on Elixir Mix. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more.